Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pocket Theology. Today, we're going to take an opportunity to share some stories from scripture and from church history that we think will be upbuilding and encouraging to you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into it. Martin, say hi to the people. Hi to the people. Nice. That's It's a classic. I appreciate it. It is a uh, real good dad joke. So we wanted today to talk a little bit about stories from the Bible and from church history that are inspirational, that have devotional value to them. And I wanted you to get us kicked off here. We're both people who love, obviously we love the Bible. We love church history too. There's a lot we can learn from the people who have gone on before us. So I know you have one of each. You have one Bible story, one church history one. Pick whichever one you want. Go with it. Tell us the story and then whatever you want to tell us about it, why you love it, why it's inspirational to you, whatever. Yeah, I'm going to do my Bible story first. So <clears throat> the Bible story that I'm going to talk about is of a guy named Samson, which most of us would look at and say, if he's an example of anything, it's an example of what not to do. The problem is we often act like him. And that's part of what I want to talk about with this story. But I specifically want to talk about him and his second wife, Delilah. So he ends up marrying a Philistine woman named Delilah, which, as just like a little bit of background, Old Testament law prohibited Jews from intermarrying. So this would normally be a no-no. Sam Samson's a Jew. Delilah's a Philistine. Uh, they're not supposed to be together. And they actually have a name for people who are half Jewish, half not. And they are, in the New Testament, referred to as Samaritans. So if you know what a Samaritan is, you know that it's not a positive thing. So Samson marries this woman named Delilah, and the Philistine king asks her to find out the secret to Samson's strength. He has this extraordinary strength. Uh, he... Uh, in one story, rips a lion in half. He breaks a donkey's jawbone off and then kills, what is it, a thousand people with it? Something like that. I think so. A dead it's, donkey. He yeah. wasn't just out here abusing donkeys. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> all I mean, Samson is tremendously strong, so much so that you could not argue that it's a physical strength. I mean, I've never seen anyone physically strong enough to rip a lion in half. Uh, I I don't know if Joey Hawkins could do it or not. I know he's been trained. I, I think Joey Hawkins probably could, um, if I had a guess. But he's a preacher, too, so maybe he's getting, like, Holy Spirit power, too. I don't know. Maybe so. I don't know. Uh, Joey is a preacher out by Jason, who I've known for a very long time. Uh, so, Joey, if you listen to this, shout out. I'll, I'll see him tomorrow. I'm going to tell him that he got a shout out in our podcast. You do that. Okay. So, Samson is this extraordinarily strong uh, human being who has been a pain in the butt to the Philistines. Uh, at the time, the Philistines are occupying the promised land of the Israelites, and they have been directed to drive them out or kill them, essentially. Uh, either one, whatever gets them out, basically. So Samson's been killing people, you know, 
like one does. There's just nothing that they can do to stop him. I mean, it's like if you're a football person, it's like Derrick Henry. What are you going to do, stand in front of him? Uh, The man kills people, essentially. But Samson is actually killing people. He's a pain in the butt to this army. He is a nightmare to anybody who comes against him. And he marries Delilah. And the king says, Delilah, find the secret to his strength so that we can be rid of him. Um, The secret is he took a Nazarite vow, which means he's not supposed to consume alcohol or touch dead things or cut his hair, of all things. Like, the first two really make sense, especially, like, Jewish worldview. But the last one just kind of, like, feels weird. But, uh, so... Samson has touched dead things, and he has drank strong drink at this point. Um, As far as we know, he has never cut his hair. Delilah, uh, in the middle of the night, after asking Samson, what's the secret to your strength? First of all, Samson blatantly lies, and I love it. Um, he's, He's protecting his secret above all else. And the first one... Delilah says, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answers her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. But believe it or not, uh, while Samson is sleeping one night, Delilah tries it. She takes seven fresh bowstrings, ties them around him, and then shouts, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And what a shocker, because he lied about where his strength came from. It's all still there, and he rips the bowstrings off like it's a piece of string. Then, after the bowstrings is the uh, rope that's never been tied. So she comes to Samson again, and uh, she says, Samson, I'm just, I'm so hurt because you won't trust me with your secret. Um, I know I tried to have the Philistines come and take you before, but I'm a changed woman now. I'm I'm changed. I can be trusted. So please tell me the secret to your strength. The moral of this story is people don't change and you can't trust them. Not the moral of the story. But Samson says, okay, well, the secret to my strength, uh, if you want to tie me up and subdue me, um, you have to have seven or you have to have a rope that's never been used for anything before and tie it around me so presumably the next night uh it's the next thing that happens in the story samson goes to sleep delilah has a rope that's never been used to tie anything before ties it around samson does the same thing shouts samson the philistines are coming and lo and behold because again samson lied He rips the rope off of him and beats a bunch of Philistines again. And then Delilah comes to him third time and says, Samson, you just, I'm, I'm so hurt. I'm starting to, I'm starting to feel like you don't love me. I, I need to know how to tie you up. And so then he gives like a half lie and says that if you tie his hair around him, he'll be fine. But he gets out of that as well when the same thing happens because Delilah says, 
oh, the Philistines are coming, and, you know. So, finally, Delilah comes to him, and she's crying. She's so hurt because Samson just can't trust her. And she says, Samson, I need to know how to tie you through tears in her eyes and sniffles in her nose. Uh, and he says, okay, okay, I'll trust you this time. After three lies, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, if you cut my hair off, I'll be just as weak as anyone else. So, shocker, guys. In the middle of the night, she cuts his hair off, has the Philistines come in, and then shouts, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he gets his butt kicked. What a shocker. Uh, and part of the reason that I think this story is really important is because you can see what Samson's doing. You can tell that he is getting closer and closer to being honest about how to be defeated. You can tell that he's giving in little by little because he likes the way that his wife looks. He, he wants her to stay with him. Uh, and you can see it all the time in teenagers and young adults and sometimes even in elderly marriages. Um, people start to give in themselves. They start to give up bits of themselves to stay with somebody. And eventually, you give up everything and you're no longer yourself. And that's part of why I think this part of Samson's story is so important. Because he has slowly but surely become an unrecognizable person. He has, I mean, not just physically, because now he doesn't have his hair, uh, but slowly but surely, he has given up parts of himself so that Delilah will stay with him. Until, eventually, he no longer is who he was. He was extremely strong. He's a judge. He's supposed to be leading the nation. And now you see him, as this defeated man who's been tied up by the Philistines, he ends up with his eyes gouged out, and he eventually finishes his job. He drives some Philistines out, but not all of them, which is an issue. But in his dying act, he asks God in his pride to give him his strength back so that he can avenge himself against the Philistines. And you can see he's not who he was. He's not the role model he was supposed to be. He's not the guy. I mean, when you look at the guy, right? When you think of the person that's leading, it's not him. And he's slowly lost parts of himself until he's become that. And I think that's really important for us to see, especially when we're younger, because a lot of times we do this. Uh, teenagers do this. Young adults do this. Sadly, older, older people do this because they don't want to lose their significant other, their girlfriend, boyfriend, their spouse. And it's really sad to see, but it's something that we see in this story and you see what ends up happening. Yeah, and you can fill in other things in the, in the gap there. We're scared of losing our job we're scared of losing our prestige we're scared of losing some like we we think that if we take a stand for our faith in a certain area that someone that is a close friend 
they might still be around, but they won't respect us as much or something like that. And so we kind of knuckle under. You can fill in the gap there with just about anything. It can be a job. It can be the way that someone looks at us. You're scared that if you take a stand for your faith that they're going to think of you poorly. It can be a friend or a family member that you're nervous that somehow your relationship is going to change. The point is, and Samson does this in several ways, even before the Delilah part of his story, prioritizing ungodly things over the things that God has for you, or even sometimes prioritizing things that are good over what is best. So there's really a matter of priority that we need to take to heart in the story of Samson. That unfortunately, Samson didn't learn. Martin, do you have any anything else you want us to to get out of this story? No. Let's hear your stories, Jason. All right. So my first one, both of mine are church history stories. The first one is very, very old. It's about a disciple of John's, like the Apostle John. His name is Polycarp, and he's from the funniest sounding city ever, the city of Smyrna, which you might recognize if you've read the book of Revelation, that one of the letters is addressed to the city of Smyrna. So Polycarp, he's Bishop of Smyrna and about middle-aged, and he's arrested during a persecution of Christians. So you'll hear two different stories when it comes to persecutions of Christians. Some people will be like, well, the Romans hated the Christians and killed them whenever they could, which isn't entirely true. And then other people will say, well, there wasn't really any organized persecution, which also isn't true. The truth, as per usual, is somewhere in the middle. There were periods of relative peace where Christians were tolerated. And then there was periods of persecution that were normally regional. So one area of the Roman Empire would be like, yeah, we're sick of Christians and would start arresting them, trying to force them to convert or renounce their religion and sometimes even killing them. And this happened for hundreds of years until the time of Emperor Constantine, who he finally outlaws the persecution of Christians. So in one of these periods, Polycarp gets arrested. Real quick, um, for a little bit of perspective, Constantine isn't until like the third or fourth century. So there's multiple hundreds of years of this going on. Yeah. Yeah, so some people will try to like, usually Christians will try to paint it as like, we're so, we were so oppressed and we were so, and it's like, not always and not everywhere. But then other people will try to belittle it and say, well, Christians, they, they were fine and they just have a persecution complex. And it's like, no, historically, Christians actually have been persecuted. And if there was a 15% likelihood of me dying for my faith, I would still be every bit as terrified as if there was an 80% likelihood because there is a serious chance that it would happen. And that's enough to just scare the tar out of you and really affect the growth of your, of your movement. So it was a big deal. During one of these periods, Polycarp, who's very, very well known as a prominent leader in the church, he was a disciple of one of Jesus's own apostles. He's arrested and he's told to recant and he refuses to. And he's sentenced to death. So on his way to be executed, uh, this is the way the story is recorded in a book that you can actually just look up. You can find translations online called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it actually records the stories. This was written by one of Polycarp's disciples and, and sent back to the church in Smyrna to tell them what happened to their bishop. 
Uh, so it contains both his martyrdom and a few other uh, martyrs that are meant to be seen as examples of the Christian faith. So this is the way that this is recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp. He's on his way to the execution, and the author writes this. And Polycarp was met by Herod, the captain of the police, and his father, Nicates, who also removed him from their carriage and tried to prevail upon him, tried to convince him, seating themselves on both sides of him and saying, what harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord and offering incense? So what he's being asked to do by the government is show us that you're not anti-empire by burning a pinch of incense. So he even he doesn't even have to say like, oh, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. He just has to say Jesus is just another deity and I will honor the emperor, which is a kind of a semi-religious exercise. It's mostly a political statement. I will honor the emperor and say that the emperor is primary in my life. And I will honor the traditional Roman gods. So you can worship Jesus, but you have to worship these other beings too. So that's what he's being asked to do. And they're saying, what harm is there? Just go ahead. And these are his friends. Just go ahead and burn this pinch of incense and tell the government what it wants to hear. And then just go on your way. So what harm is there in, in burning a pinch of incense and saying Caesar is Lord? But he gave them this answer saying no. And they continued and said, if you do this, you will save yourself. And he refuses. And when they persisted, he said, I am not going to do what you counsel me. Then they, failing to persuade him, uttered threatening words at him and made him to dismount with speed so that he bruised his shin as he got down from the carriage. And without even turning around, he went on his way promptly and with speed as if nothing had happened to them. So they stopped. They stop his carriage. Eventually, they get so mad, they're going to pull him out of the carriage and beat some sense into him. And he just gets up, dusts himself off, and keeps walking towards what he knows will probably be his execution. And he ends up in this stadium where he's being tried. And there's so much tumult in the stadium that no man's voice could be heard. And then a few chapters later. But as Polycarp entered, or a few verses later, as Polycarp entered into the stadium, a voice came to him from heaven that said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. So this is a Christian writer who said, all the Christians heard it. And at length, when Polycarp was brought up, there is a great tumult. And they heard that Polycarp, or for they heard that Polycarp had been apprehended. So a little bit jumping back and forth. These ancient authors are a little weird. And this translation isn't the smoothest, but bear with me. Chapter later, they're recording Polycarp's last moments. And this is the way that the event is described. When Polycarp was brought before the proconsul, the Roman official, he inquired as to whether or not Polycarp was the man that he was accused of being. And on this, he confessed that he was. And the proconsul tried to persuade him into the denial, saying, have respect for thine age. So he's only middle age. He's saying, you're still a relatively young man. You could live another two decades. So have respect for your age. Just go ahead and deny Jesus and we won't kill you. That's the offer being made. He says, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheist, for Christians were called atheists because they did not believe in all the gods of Rome. Then Polycarp, with a solemn countenance, looked upon the whole multitudes of lawless heathen. What an insult. The whole multitudes of lawless heathen that were in the stadium waved his hand to them and groaning looked up and looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. 
what a man. He's being told he's going to be executed if he doesn't shape up. And he literally turns and insults the crowd. Like, that's all that's all the recanting you're going to get from me. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear this oath and I will release you, revile the Christ, Polycarp said the best line that I think I've ever heard from a soon-to-be Christian martyr. These are supposedly his last words, the last words that we know. Polycarp said, four score and six years, I have been his servant, and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king? The letter goes on to say that Polycarp's captors threatened him. He still refused uh, to revile Christ, to deny Christ. They threatened him with wild animals and then eventually settled on trying to kill him by burning him at the stake. When they tried to burn him, the flames wouldn't even touch his skin, so they stabbed him to death and burned his body instead. And the obvious moral of this story, the point of it is, no matter the circumstances, no matter what it costs you, do not deny Christ. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Anyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father in heaven. Anyone who denies me before men, I will deny him before my father in heaven. Polycarp picked the right side, even though it cost him his life. I just wanted to point out Polycarp starts out four score and six years ago, um, which always reminds me not of the Gettysburg Address but of epic rap battles of history with Abraham Lincoln. I remember when those were like the biggest thing when I was like in middle school, early high school, and like everyone loved them. They're great. They're pretty funny. They're horrifically inappropriate sometimes. They're really funny. I don't know what you're talking about. Martin, do you have any comments on that story or you just want to jump into your next one? I think the moral I think is pretty straightforward, but maybe you see something I don't. Yeah, Polycarp's pretty cool. Yeah, that's if you get a chance, um, there's a whole work that's written later that's collected stories of people who are martyred for Jesus called the Book of the Martyrs. Um, if you get a chance, even just to read some excerpts, very, very worthwhile. Hey, everybody. I hope that this conversation so far has been helpful and encouraging or at least interesting to you. If so, please leave a five-star review. The rest of this conversation is going to come out next week with two more stories from church history where we're talking about Martin Luther and a Catholic saint by the name of St. Francis. So please stick around and join us for that as well. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at realpockettheology at gmail.com. That is realpockettheology at gmail.com. Leave a five-star review, share this with your friends and your family. We really appreciate you giving us some time. We hope that it's helpful and we'll see you back here next week.